Liberty Station is brought to you by my good friends at Devoted Capital, where they believe how you profit matters. They're dedicated to helping you align your investments with your values, empowering you to a life well-lived. Welcome to the Bryce Eddy Show on Liberty Station, where we are a threat to the Great Reset, and um, I have um, the perfect guest for the perfect time we are in, and this is a repeat guest, a dear friend of ours, um, Bill Federer, historian, and we are going to talk about what's happening with the Twitter files and all of the evidence that's coming out right now suggesting, well, proving that all that Bill Federer talked about in our history is correct when it comes to the false flags and the manipulation and all of the things that they've done. Don't think that they aren't doing it now. Bill Federer, are you here, sir? Hey, great to be with you, Bryce. Yeah, so thank you for coming on because I think that people um, take for granted a little bit of um, just they, they have the historical perspective. Yeah, of course they did those things then, but we've somehow matured and improved and the dynamics of government has changed and we're just a better people. So, you know, although our intelligence communities have committed all kinds of actions against us, you know, throughout history or in other cultures, they did these things. They couldn't possibly be doing it now. And with the Twitter files and everything that Elon Musk, God bless him for this, has revealed, it is clear that they have continued their bad actions through history. And our intelligence forces are controlling a lot of our tech industries and manipulating what we're seeing. So I, I wanted you to comment on that and go through many of the things that we've talked about in prior episodes, but let's make it all real again because it's happening now. Well, thank you. And if anything has happened, they've perfected their techniques. Um, you know, one of the studies that I do is the history of warfare. And the Sun Tzu's Art of War, he was 5th century BC, China, and he gives all these tactics of always try to be uphill and fight downhill rather than the other way around. And another one is you never want to fight in front of a river because if you're losing, it makes it hard to run away. And, and then at the end of it, he says, supreme excellence in a commander is to get your enemy to surrender without a fight. And so this was the beginning of what's called psychological warfare. And uh, there was a guy named Clauwitz in the 1800s in Germany, and he gave the classic definition of the purpose of war, which is to get your enemy to submit to your will. So you're killing their bodies. Why? Well, because their mind is loyal to the other side. Well, what if you could just mess with their mind, get them to be disloyal, get them to be demoralized, get them to feel like the the uh, the shock and awe that it, it's so... Uh, un overwhelmingly impossible to fight back that they just give up? What if you could just mess with their mind? And so this gave birth to what's called psychological warfare, cognitive warfare, shortened to psyops, which is a psychological operation. And, and so the battle is for the mind. There's even biblical uh, examples. Uh, one is in a negative way. So the 12 spies go into the promised land and they come back and 10 of them have a what? Negative report. 
And this spreads like an immediate virus psychologically through the whole nation of Israel. And they give up without a fight. They're like, let's stone Moses. Let's get elected leader and go back to Egypt. They're like, ah, but it's all psychological. And God said, God was so upset at him. He made him wander for 40 years, right? But they were defeated in their mind. They never even made it to the battlefield. And then we can look at it from a, a positive point of view. Gideon, uh, he has his 300 uh, courageous guys, right? There's uh, 100,000 Midianites invading Israel. 100,000, that's a lot. Imagine if you were in some village and somebody runs in and says, there's 100,000. Uh, and so Gideon's able to get uh, 30,000 Israelites. You think, okay, it's three to one, you know. Then God says, tell everyone that's scared to go home. Then he whittles it to 10,000. And God says, still too many. Have them go drink from a creek and whittles it down to 300. And then God says, watch this. And he has these 300 with their torches covered in a clay pot and with their trumpets. And then they go and surround the entire Midianite army, smash the clay pots. The light is suddenly there. And then they blow the trumpets. Now, Evidence shows that they just stood there and they're blowing their trumpets, holding their torches. And the Midianites, they're the ones that freak out psychologically. And they're like scrambling out of their tents and running into each other and killing each other. And and they, they were defeated psychologically, right? So this is something that is seen as a legitimate um, tactic in war. So if you can get your enemy to surrender without a fight, there's fifth generation warfare where you get your enemy to surrender without them even being aware that they're in a fight. I mean, why even let them be aware that there's, if the battle is for their mind, then what if you could just capture their mind without them even waking up to realize they're in a fight? So this fifth generation warfare is where we're at. And now the psychological warfare, uh, World War II, we would print pamphlets in German and fly airplanes over German villages and drop these out. And people would pick them up and read them. And they would say things like, your side is already lost. Your commander hasn't told you yet. Uh, you're just, you know, don't throw away your life by fighting. And it would mess with their mind. And of course, the Japanese did it to us with Tokyo Rose, this woman with a seductive voice would speak in English in the radio and it would just go, you know, care be carried all across the Pacific. And our guys would like tune in and listen. And they, she would say, you Americans are terrible. You're doing terrible things. Your side is horrible. And it would mess with our guys' minds. Now during the Vietnam war, they stepped it up and they wanted to get drugs into our young men and, and mess with their minds that way. But it's the, the goal is to get your enemy into fear and into an overwhelming fear so that they just cave and give up, which is, again, what those 10 spies did to, to the Israelites. And it's sort of interesting that throughout the Bible, God over and over again says what? Fear not, fear not, fear not. Uh, perfect love casts out fear. Well, what's that all about? Well, if you really believe that God loves you, then you can trust him with your life and you can trust him that he's not gonna put you in a situation that you can't handle. And so just trust him. So when you realize he loves you perfectly, it casts out the fear. 
But all throughout the Bible, it's fear not, fear not. And if you think of it, it's almost like two different electrical charges, right? God's kingdom works through faith and the devil's kingdom works through fear. And uh, so, you know, Job said, the thing I greatly feared came upon me. So fear is like a magnet and it draws the, the things that you're afraid of towards you. And faith is like a good magnet and it draws the, the thing that you're having faith for to you, you know, obviously from the Lord it, in, in, in accordance with God's will. And that's why we read the Bible so that we know what God's will is. But um, anyway, uh, that's just a beginning uh, Bryce, and if you want, I can keep going on some tactics that have been used well, throughout history. Yeah, yeah, I, and I do want you to. I'm going to take this moment to also identify that when you're talking about just, you know, getting us to lose and give up, you know, based on that psyops, they've done that to a lot of us during this election cycle. There's a lot of people that I talk to that have the mindset now of not voting and not participating, and not running for things, and not even trying because uh, the game is rigged. The left, who has done that, did that intentionally. A lot of the ballot shenanigans, a lot of what they have done to uh, game the election, they've been quite proud of, and they know we know that they've done these things. And they love the thought that we feel helpless about it instead of us learning to play the game that they set before us more effectively. They are enjoying the fact that so many of us just decided it's, it's useless, I shouldn't even vote, it doesn't even matter or count now. Yeah, you know, uh, you're quite an athlete, and I, back in, in high school, wrestled. And so I was 185 pounds, and uh, I remember before the match, the wrestlers would be on, you know, either side of the gymnasium and you would uh, flex your muscles and you'd strut like you're real tough and you and uh, and stretch. And and and, you know, sure enough, the guy on the other side would like view you and 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 the goal is you, you get him to be psyched out. You get him to yeah. to be. And it's um it's a, a genuine tactic in, in in any type of competition. Now, uh from a spiritual point of view, I look at it from the idea that, um, you know, uh, God created light and he, the light travels at 186,000 miles per second. And Einstein's theory of relativity is if you could travel the speed of light for you, time would stand still. And since God created light, he's faster than light. So for God, time effectively stands still. We'll, we'll never comprehend that. But there is a verse in the Bible that says, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. So from God's point of view, every moment, uh, we're moving in ultra slow motion compared to God. And now this is uh, important because we can make our little free will decisions, but he can readjust every atom in the universe so that his will takes place. But when we understand right. that, that here we are on earth, and in a sense, God is putting us in a position where we have to reveal our heart. I mean, even salvation itself is what? Believe in your heart, but confess with your mouth. He wants to have some words come out, and then he prescribes an action of getting baptized. But this idea that, oh, God knows my heart. Well, yeah, he does, but he knew Abraham's heart. But he wanted to see Abraham be willing to take his beloved son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah and be willing to kill him. And it's like a, a husband and you, he's watching TV 
And you say, hey, when was the last time you told your wife you love her? And he goes, oh, I can't remember, but she knows my heart. It's like, okay, but when was the last time you did anything to show your wife you love her? Oh, I can't remember, but she knows my heart. It's like, dude, we need to have a little talk here. And people mm-hmm. say, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And he wants to hear some words out of your mouth and he wants to see some actions. And he's basically pushing you into a position where you have to make a decision. Are you going to be silent and by your silence be complicit with the evil? Or are you going to say, I had enough. I have to speak out. I have to do something. So whether we can turn it around or not, God is putting us in the position where we have to at least try. We have to at least show him through our words and through our actions that we're not in agreement with the evil and that we're going to do everything we can to turn it around. You know, you look at William Wilberforce. He was able to get the slave trade ended in England, but then he spent the next 30 years of his life to free the slaves within the British Empire. And I think on his deathbed, they'd like run in and say it passed. And, and But what if he died? What if he never saw that? Uh, the idea is that John Quincy Adams says, duty is ours, results are God's. Amen. Yeah, that's but, beautiful. Um, but as far as the battle for the mind, I've got some other little stories that I could share if, if you're interested. Yeah, I am interested. Let's do this. So marketing of products. In the 1800s, it was what? Sears Catalog and Wells Fargo Wagon. And they would list every single thing about a sewing machine. And you would make an informed purchase. But then in the early 1900s, you had the beginning of magazine advertisements. And um, there was a guy named Edward Bernays, and he pioneered this. He realized you don't have to say anything about a product. You just make it look like everybody is using it. And it worked. Um, You know, one of them was Crisco. Nobody knew what was in Crisco. They even made up a term, vegetable-based. But nobody knew what was in it. Yet they had these magazine ads that made it look like everybody's using it and had delicious pictures of food. It was so successful, it put out of business the lard industry, right? You cook meat, you get the fat, the lard, you make soap out of it, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, what's Crisco? It's cottonseed oil. In the deep south, they harvested cotton and they would have these mountains of black seeds that nobody did anything with. They would mush it into mucky oil and use it in factories and machinery and yeah. in industrial oil. But somebody had the idea to. Yeah, nutritionally, that the seed oils and what they did to us there. And, you know, this is a little bit of a, you know, area I love to follow. But, but industrial seed oils have ruined our health more than almost anything else. And, and so it's, a, it's interesting to go back in history and see when they did that. They just thought, hey, this is useless stuff. What are we going to do with it? Oh, yeah, okay, we'll have people consume it. Yeah, yeah, they bleached it, put it in a container with a nice magazine advertisement campaign, and nobody knew what was in it. And yet it was, it worked. And so this idea of you don't have to say anything, you just make it look like everybody's using it. So Edward Bernays said that classic was women's shoes. And he said, women go into a department store, think they're picking out shoes. They're not. The shoes were picked out for him by the marketing executive. And he paid the actress to put them on. And he paid the photographer to take the pictures. And he paid to put it in the magazines. And the ladies looked at the magazines and decided they want the shoes. And Edward Bernays wrote a book in 1928 called Propaganda. And by the way, he was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, that psychoanalyst guy. 
But Edward Bernays said, a large manufacturer of women's shoes has a popular actress where the shoes, the fashion spreads. The man who injected this idea into the shoe industry was ruling women in one department of their social lives. Today, the minority has discovered a powerful help in influencing the majority to mold the minds of the masses. They find in propaganda a tool which is increasingly powerful, regimenting the public mind. And so the same way that you could influence minds to want to buy a product, they say just turn it and influence minds to buy an ideology. And so this was, again, something that was studied over and over again. Uh, Edward Bernays said, in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct, in our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. And, uh, you know, our Declaration of Independence says government from the consent of the governed. But, but what if you could engineer consent? And so Edward Bernays wrote a book called The Engineering of Consent. And he says manipulation of the opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. So here we have 1928. This guy is saying, look, you control what the people hear and see, and then you can engineer their consent. They think they're voting for something, but it's been determined for them. Now, why is this important? Because we have to realize that the things that we're seeing through mainstream media, the things that have been censored you know, previously by Twitter and, and these other different social media platforms, uh, and with coordination with the CIA, um, that this has been played on us. And once we see through it, it's like the Wizard of Oz and they're in front of this great Oz and the little dog Toto goes over to the curtain and pulls it aside and you see this old man. And all of a sudden, you're not afraid of him anymore. Once you realize this tactic, it takes the power of the tactic away. And then you can operate in faith. And so um, that's one of the, the things I like bringing out. Um, another person, Noam Chomsky, wrote a book called Manufacturing Consent. And uh, another guy, Oswald Spengler, wrote in the book Decline of the West, 1923, democracy has become a weapon of the moneyed interests. It uses the media to create the illusion that there is consent of the governed. The press today is an army of carefully organized weapons. The journalists, its officers, the readers, its soldiers. The reader neither knows nor is supposed to know the purposes for which he is used and the role he is to play. Democracy is often a government of wealthy elites. So democracy, the people vote, but you can only vote for what you know. Right? And what you know comes to you through the media. Now, luckily, we have some alternative media. And that's why I appreciate you, Bryce, so much. Do you know whom you're voting for? With every product you buy and every dollar you spend, you are casting your vote. Devoted Capital offers values-based investing portfolios that are designed to help you reach your financial goals, all the while making a positive impact on your life and the world around you. They are dedicated to educating, engaging, and empowering you to be wise with your investments and to equip you to be knowledgeable with your vote. Visit their website at devotedcapital.com to learn more about values-based investing or dial 
805-372-0821 to speak to your values investor advocate today. Investment advisory services offered through Alliance Advisory and Securities, LLC, registered investment advisor. But the, the battle is for the mind, this cognitive warfare, this, this psyops, and these tactics uh, have been used throughout history. Um, another instance is the Spanish-American War. So uh, we just get through the Civil War, and word starts to come into America of Cuba. The people in Cuba want freedom from Spain. And they have a 10-year war, and the Spanish send over this terrible governor who more or less rounds up the people, sort of like January 6th, and and has a quarter of a million people, like a, a huge percentage of the country of Cuba is, is in these concentration camps and they're starving to death. And the, the, the Americans, we're asleep. We don't really, it's 90 miles off our coast, but we're not. And so you had the publishers of two major newspapers. One was William Randolph Hearst, and he had the New York Journal. And the other was Joseph, Joseph Pulitzer, and he had the New York World. And that's the Pulitzer Prize, Pulitzer. And so they began to print articles persuasively to want to get the Americans to realize what's going on in Cuba. And, uh, and it got called yellow journalism because the, the paper they printed on was inexpensive, cheap paper. And after a few days, it would turn yellow. Anyway, one of the stories, Hearst sent his illustrator, Frederick Remington, to Cuba. Now, they had not developed the technology to print photographs yet, and so they would have etchings that were drawn by illustrators. And so Frederick Remington was sent to Cuba and to draw pictures of these starving people that were emaciated, and um, Hearst cabled Remington in 1897 and said, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. Now, again, from that point of view, it was, you study it, there was legitimate injustice going on in Cuba. And America, 90 miles away, had a, a responsibility to get, get down there and free these people, which they eventually did. But the, the media began to realize it had power. And so the, uh, the, the, it developed more and more through World War II, and then with the advent of television and movies, and um, and then with the Cold War, especially these tactics were being used, and and now we have the the internet, and um, uh, you know one of the things during World War II, the Edward Bernays, uh, he was actually studied by a guy over in Germany named Joseph Goebbels. And Edward Bernays' book was titled what? Propaganda. He wrote a book called Propaganda. He later changed the name of it to Public Relations. But uh, And so Joseph Goebbels in Germany was the quote-unquote minister of propaganda. Imagine having that on your business card. And so Edward Bernays influences Joseph Goebbels. Goebbels says, okay, people will do what they see everybody else doing, and they won't ask questions. Why? So Goebbels orchestrated these Coliseum events with 100,000 people. And they would begin to give the Hitler salute in the front. And sort of like a wave at a football game, it would work its way back and back and back. And everybody else would see everybody else giving the Hitler salute. They would get closer than they would give it. And people would see you give it. And then they'd feel pressure to give it. 
And it was a manipulating of this human phenomenon of wanting to fit in. And then, of course, Goebbels got uh, movies and they would uh, do these movies that would idolize Hitler and they would show him in the theater and make him look like such a hero. But the idea of a minority manipulating the majority, another biblical example, is Pilate. So Mark chapter 15, it says Pilate had the, uh, the priest come to him and, um, and it says, but Pilate answered them saying, will, uh, will ye that I released you the king of the Jews? For he knew the chief priests had delivered him for envy. But the chief priest moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas. Pilate answered, what will ye then that I shall do unto him ye call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, delivered Jesus to be crucified. So here you have a majority of the people being manipulated by the minority, the, the priests. And, um, and, and so they, they crucified Jesus. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a domino effect. And if you think of it, uh, our country is controlled by laws. Laws are controlled by politicians. Politicians are controlled by voters. Voters are controlled by public opinion. And public opinion is controlled by the media in the short run, education in the long run. To a certain extent, the church, right? It used to be a bigger part of influencing public opinion, but it's still there. And then lastly, the internet. And all three of those, right, the media, education, and the church use the internet. But these are public opinion molding bodies. And during the Cold War, the um, Soviets would do what's called critical theory, where they would send somebody into a country and study all the groups and then study who the influencers were of these groups. And then they would begin to name, name some victims and others oppressors, haves and have nots, and then they would stir up these groups into conflict. And then the conflict would break out into bloodshed and fighting, and then everybody would begin to cry out for someone to come in with enough power and restore order. And that's when the communists would come in and do a regime change and put in their puppet. And um, but But these tactics have been perfected. Now, America, after... The, uh, well, during World War II, we actually had a Army and Navy um, Department of Motion Pictures. And you're like, what's the Army and Navy doing wanting to make motion pictures? They realized the psychological uh, power that it had. And I even talked to older guys that they had would have a movie, uh, black and white, you know, in the early 1940s or whatever, and it would have these guys going off to war and fighting and being heroes and coming back and, you know, James Cagney and all the different ones. And, and these guys would leave the movie and go into the lobby of the movie theater and there would be uh, card tables with recruiters signing guys up for the military right then. And, um, and so that was ostensibly for a patriotic purpose. Right, that there genuinely was a Hitler. He genuinely was killing Jews. It was terrible, and and we needed to wake up our country to this global threat. Um, and and this continued during the Cold War. You had um, John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State um, under Eisenhower, and he had 
uh, Dulles Airport in Virginia is named after him. And his brother, Alan Dulles, was the head of the CIA. And America was not taking serious the Soviet threat. We had won World War II and we're back to our life as usual. And they're like, wait a second, we have a, a serious Soviet threat. And so they started what was later called Operation Mockingbird, where they would write stories and feed it to the press. But they kept it undercover. You know how the CIA likes to keep things undercover. Yeah. But um, uh, the, uh, the Watergate reporter, Carl Bernstein, did an interview with, with the Rolling Stone magazine in 1977. The title of the article was The CIA and the Press. And so Carl Bernstein said that the CIA has over 400 assets in the, the press, the journalism field, in the, the media, radio, television. And what's an asset? That's somebody that's basically on their payroll. And so you would be watching your normal news and think you're getting the news, but it would be a story written by the CIA and fed to the press that they would put in there. Now, again, ostensibly, this was for a patriotic purpose because it was to make America aware of the Soviet threat. It was a genuine threat. And while uh, Truman was president, he didn't take the threat of the Soviets serious. Truman helped start the United Nations. And he you know, had his security console and all these other countries were in on that. And, and so he really wanted it to work. And so he would basically sort of submit America to the decisions of the United Nations. And um, so country, and, and so basically there was a Soviet, there was the, the, the bylaws of the United Nations says that a Soviet had to be in the security council, which means any military decisions the UN did, the communists knew about it. And so that's why we never, quote unquote, won the Korean War. It's, it's an armistice that never really ended. And that's why, in a sense, we, we lost the Vietnam War. I mean, because everything we would plan through the United Nations, the, the communists knew right away. And um, so, um, uh, so Carl Bernstein was revealing how that the CIA was trying to wake America up through the media. Um, once Carl Bernstein's article became well known, it pressured the CIA and they publicly said that they disbanded their program. Now, if you trust that, um, that's up to you. But um, uh, most people think that they didn't. They just went uh, a little deeper with it. Sort of like we were told that the, that the NSA would only Sur, sur, do surveillance on foreign people right after 9-11. And then we realized that the NSA uh, on their own decided to expand it and surveillance, you know, do surveillance on everybody in the country. It's like, oh, well, you know, so that's sort of what happened. So now, uh, but again, you still had a ostensible patriotic motivation behind it. This all changed with Obama. Obama was one who politicized government offices. Remember the IRS, uh, Lois Lerner, she met with Obama like 147 times, signs in to the White House, meets with him. And during her tenure, the IRS is turned to go after conservative groups and do audits and harass them and everything. And then when she's called to testify, what does she do? She just pleads the fifth, stands up and walks out. That's it. She just gets away with it. And then we have um, uh, 
Eric Holder. And he's giving guns to drug gangs in Mexico. And these guns are being used to kill Americans. And when he's called to testify, he just pleads the fifth, right? And, and walks out. And, and then we see the uh, intelligence gathering agencies, the NSA and so forth, being used uh, under the Obama administration to put plants in the Trump campaign and to spy on Trump. And, and this, is, this is third world. This is dangerous to have uh, the people that are in power not wanting to give up the power. And we're now seeing it with the military. There's a purging going on of the military of anybody that holds traditional values, that's not embracing the LGBT, CRT, uh, and has decisions about bodily integrity, not wanting to inject things in there. They're being purged so that all you have left is people that are simply um, yes men. And um, there was a William Kelly during the Vietnam War that was responsible for the My Lai massacre for those not familiar, uh, he was uh, a captain and the orders were given to clear out a village. And so he killed everybody in the village, which were a lot of innocent people. And then when the became public, um, everybody's passing the blame, but he got blamed for it. And he said, well, I was just following orders. And they said, look, you're not supposed to follow orders if they violate fundamental um values of right and wrong, like killing innocent children and killing innocent women. Um, so it was this expectation in the military that you, you want people that have some kind of conscience that is gone. They don't want people with some kind of conscience. If you have any type of conscience, they want you gone. They want people that will just follow orders. And, um, and so beginning, you know, before then, but but it came to a head un, under the Obama administration. We began to see that agencies of the government that were supposed to be nonpartisan were being used in a partisan way. Yeah, and, there's no um, such thing. There's no such thing anymore. And and in that, I I would say that they don't want just people with a um, ability or, or a clear um, desire to just follow orders and all that. They actually want. Uh, naked partisans now, and we see, we're seeing that in some of the Twitter files revealed with one of the CIA analysts working for Google. His whole thread is incredibly anti-conservative and anti-Trump and anti, um, you know, anything on the right, and it, and he goes for miles. I mean, saying terrible things, and so that's who's manipulating us. It's not just people who are following the elite oligarchs level. It's people who are nakedly partisan now. You know, they view Christians as enemies, and when you ask the question why, um, the Judeo-Christian belief system highlights the individual that you have rights from a creator and the government's purpose is to guarantee to you your God-given rights and this creator is not a respecter of persons. And this creator says that you have rights irregardless of whether you can contribute to society. You're just made in the image of God, you have rights. And so this idea of an individual must be gotten rid of in order to institute socialism and communism. Those are group where your rights and your worth come from being a part of a group, not as an individual. And someone that noticed this was Antonio Gramsci, and he was a socialist. The uh, Lenin-Stalin socialists wanted to take over the world with tanks. 
And Antonio Gramsci said, no, you can't do it that fast. You need to do it slow. You need to rot the West from the inside. And so sort of like the seven mountains in reverse, uh, they, they, basically the Christians had all seven mountains, entertainment, business, you know, the education and we had it, but he came up with this idea. Uh, by the way, he got on the wrong side of the other socialists and was put into prison in Italy where he died. And, but while, before he died, he wrote his prison notebooks in, in 1937. And this is one of the things that Antonio Gramsci wrote. The civilized world has been thoroughly saturated with Christianity for 2000 years. Any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values cannot be overthrown until those roots are cut. Socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media transforming the consciousness of society. And so we've seen that, the infiltration of schools, the National Teachers Association, and the infiltration of universities. And Charlie Kirk wrote a great book on uh, on how the whole university scam. Uh, and then you have churches, all these woke churches. And, um, and I've talked about that. One of the things I bring out about the churches is uh, those that think that it's spiritual not to be involved. Mm. And I, I, I have taught on this before, but for the, in the 1600s, you had Calvinist Puritans founding America, and their attitude was God has a plan for your life, marriage, family, church, government, find out what God's plan is, put it into place. And it's a good plan. It's a plan without a king. And you get to be in charge of your life, and we're in covenant with each other. It's a plan. But in the early 1700s, you had German Lutheran pietists coming into America, and they said it's more than a plan. You have to have an experience with Jesus. And they spark a revival movement. And they add to it that if you really become a Christian, you'll not do worldly things you used to do, like go to bars and brothels and loot theater and get involved in worldly things like government. Wait, what was that last thing? Yeah, government, so full of worldly people. If you're really a Christian, you're not gonna be involved in government. So the first century, you had these Calvinist Puritans saying, hey, get involved. Let's do a covenant form of government like ancient Israel without a king and everybody's involved. But the 1700s, no, 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 don't get involved. You gotta be holy, you gotta be set apart. And that's the beginning of where you get this idea that I'm holier than you are because I'm not involved. And you have people writing books, so we're not in it to win and so forth. And, um, and so where did that come from? Well, it, it came from, uh, again, Germany. You had Martin Luther started the Reformation, 1517, and uh, some German princes want to break from Rome, and they go, this is by chance, kingdom of mine, you're all now Lutheran. And the people in the kingdom say, okay, uh, what do we believe? And so for the people in the kingdoms, it's not the same personal revelation Martin Luther had. It's just a new state doctrine. So a revival movement starts called pietism. This is being a Christian more than doctrine, you got to have this experience, and when you do, you won't be involved in government, and it turned into the two-kingdom concept, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the church, the two don't touch, the secular and the the sacred, and there were even German princes that would donate money to the pietists, so they would teach their people not to get involved in the prince's business. It's like, yeah, here's some more money, (laughs) leave me alone, (laughs) and um, and four centuries of that allowed Hitler to seize power, and and they put the Jews in train cars going by the churches, and they're crying out for help. And the church's response was, well, that's the government doing that. We can't do anything about it, it's the government. 
uh, we're the church, and so let's just sing praise songs to Jesus louder. And it's like, can anybody see there's something wrong with the picture, right? And, and so what do you do with the people that think it's holier not to be involved? And I've spoken about this, but it's Numbers chapter 30, and it's the silence equals consent chapter, where if a daughter is in her father's house, binds herself with a vow, and the day the father hears it, if he's silent, the, the daughter's vows stand. But if the father disallows it, she's released from the vow. And that's come down to us as vows in a wedding ceremony. And the pastor says, if you're silent, church, you're giving consent to this wedding, right? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, if your silence gives consent to wedding vows, it gives consent to other things. It's called the rule of tacit admission, T-A-C-I-T. And it's in common law. Black's Law Dictionary says uh, it's an admission reasonably inferable from a party's failure to act or speak. Look, I'm going to admit something. I'm a terrible gift giver, but not this year, because my friends at Good Ranchers are making it easy to give the gift of meat. This is actually a great idea. In fact, a hard economic year for most has caused essential gifts to be more needed and wanted than ever. Fortunately, you can easily give the most essential gift of all this year, delicious meat. Good Ranchers has gift boxes and gift cards so that you can give America's best meat and seafood this Christmas. With discounts on orders of five boxes or more, you can save on gifts for the whole family or your business. When you give someone a box of Good Ranchers, you're gifting them more than the best meat they've ever had. You're giving a true steakhouse experience. With 100% American, USDA Prime, and upper choice cuts of beef, chicken, and seafood, you're sure to beat out the new socks and re-gifted candles for the best gift of the year. Head on over to GoodRanchers.com and use code LIBERTY at checkout for $35 off your delicious gift of meat. If you know someone that likes meat, then you know someone who will love Good Ranchers. Your gift goes further with them because they take the premium price out of premium meats. Go to GoodRanchers.com and find the perfect box for you or a loved one in their curated selection of hand-trimmed meat and seafood. Give the best meat in America, support local U.S. farms, and get $35 off your essential gift with my code LIBERTY today. Good Ranchers, American meat delivered. Right, so if you just, you know, you're on a trial stand and they ask you a question and you don't respond, the jury can assume you're guilty of whatever you're accused of because you didn't deny it, right? And so if there are sins going on in the community, they're killing babies, and you are silent, you're giving consent to killing babies. Yep. Remember when um, Zedekiah was, uh, no, I'm sorry, Jehoiakim, this wicked king, one of the last kings of Judah, and Jeremiah had a prophecy. And uh, Jehoiakim is in his winter palace and has a little fire going, and all the elders of Israel are standing around, and they would read a portion of Jeremiah's prophecy, and this Jehoiakim would take his penknife and cut it out and stick it in the fire. They'd read a little more, he'd cut out and burn it, cut out. And it says that none of the men around him tore their garments or objected or, or you know, protested except El Nathan and another guy. Um, but they were they were being they were condemned because they weren't speaking out at this terrible injustice of burning God's prophets, the words of the prophet. And so uh, Acts chapter twenty, the apostle Paul is talking about how terrible he was before he got saved. And he said, I stood there silent, giving my consent when they were stoning Stephen. So Paul didn't pick up a rock and throw it at Stephen. 
he didn't egg the other guys on. Yeah, go get him. He just stood there silent. But he knew by being silent while they were killing Stephen that he was guilty. And so if the church is silent, whether we can turn it around or not, we need to be out there trying. We need to let let heaven, let the angels, let everybody hear that we are not in agreement with killing babies. And, um, and they have a, a tactic. It's to guilt trip Christians into being more Christian than Christ. They say, if you're really Christian, you'll be silent while they're teaching the LGBTQ agenda, this trans agenda. Christians yeah. are, are tolerate everything. Christians are just a bunch of mush. They'll, they'll tolerate anything. They have, and so you, if you're really Christian, you'll be silent and tolerate us teaching your kids and, and, yeah, the, well, that's you a know. Saul Alinsky uh, tactic, you know, holding us, um, you know, to to our own manipulated standards, and that, and that that is the game that they play, and they're doing it masterfully, unfortunately. But that's that's how they get us to shut up. And it's going to be a rude awakening for those people that think they're being holier by not being involved when they realize by their silence they're giving consent to sin. They're going to be judged for the sin. They're setting themselves up for judgment by being silent. Well, and so, here and here on um, on this earthly plane, I, I think we're coming along to the point of you know real persecution and prosecution, which is coming for Christians. Um, they're they're looking for those opportunities now, and the longer we're silent and ignoring the low level persecution against Christians. They will get away with more and more and more until it is gun to your head kind of moments, and then by then, you know, for a lot of these folks, it's it's too late to fight then, and and they'll have woken up saying, "Hey, whoa, how did this happen? You know, how is this happening to us? You know," um, and and then oftentimes it's too late to fight. Yeah, you know, you remind me of the 1500s. There was Catherine de Medici, so the. In Florence, you had the Medici family, and they were very wealthy, and they would marry their kids to all the different monarchs in Europe. And so she was married to the king of France. The king dies, and so she rules France through her young son, who's like 12 years old, and she even marries the son to Mary, Queen of Scots from Scotland. And uh, But then a couple of years later, he dies, and she sends Mary, Queen of Spot, Scots back to Scotland, and she rules France through the, another son. And she then she marries her daughter to Henry of Navarre. And um, a little background. So, so she would, um, about 15% of France was Protestant. They were called Huguenots. And first, she would uh, have them limited to certain areas of the country and then limited to traveling uh, certain places and then limited to their church, uh, you know, and then limited to this and limited to that. And, and the Christians would like give in a little bit and then give in this. So they, they, they comply, they comply, they comply. And then finally, um, she was going to marry her daughter. She did, Margaret de Valois, to Henry Navarre, who was like the most prominent Huguenot leader. And the marriage, marriage took place in Paris. And so all the wealthy, well-to-do, powerful Huguenot Protestants were in Paris for this great wedding. And a couple of days after the wedding, she has them pull chains across the, the streets of Paris so that the carriages can't go down the street to get out of the city. And then she sends her men house to house and they kill, in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of 1572, they kill 30,000 of all these Protestant leaders. 
and then throw their bodies in the Seine River and and then just chase all the rest. And so the the lesson is that had they not caved uh, to these very small surrendering of their freedom, but pushed back immediately, they wouldn't have been trapped. And so the other side sees it as blood in the water. They see it as weakness. In Islam, they have a concept. When your enemy is strong, retreat. When your enemy is weak, attack. It's mm-hmm. like the law of nature. Uh, you know, a, a wolf will attack a weak animal. And, and so when when they do injustices and we don't, you know, when Patrick Henry, five-time governor of the state of Virginia, uh, he was the first governor of Virginia after we chased the British out, Lord Dunmore. And he says, our mild religion teaches us the maxim of forgive and forget. As individuals, we must operate this way. But he says, as a nation, we cannot. When we suffer injuries, we need to you know, fight back. I'm paraphrasing here. He says, observation of this kind are difficult but necessary. So this idea that I'll take personal abuse, but I'm not going to take it on behalf of of my family. I'm not going to let my kids get abused and my wife get abused and you know, the, the generations after me get abused. Um, I need to stand up for them and especially for the unborn. And I think God is pushing us to a place like how much are, do you care about? There, there's nothing more unjust than killing an innocent baby that hasn't done anything wrong. And if you can stand by and let them kill innocent babies that haven't done anything wrong, um, there's nothing, there's no greater injustice than that. If that doesn't cause your heart, you know, there's a song that, uh, I know I'm getting preachy here, um, but um, it, it's a, a Hosanna song. And I, I heard a version of, with Kim Walker Smith and she has like children singing in the background. And But there's a line in there that says, break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for the kingdom's cause, but and you break my heart for what breaks yours. You think it breaks Jesus's heart to see these little kids that he loves being chemically chemically castrated or or being you know having their breasts removed, little girls. I mean, um, yes. And, and so if if it breaks Jesus's heart, and we're just not being bothered by it, then it it some, reveals something about our heart. It says mm-hmm. in the last days, the love of many will wax cold because evil will abound. And, um, or, or being afraid to say anything, because that's a real thing with that particular issue right now, is the, uh, the attacks that you get. You know, we get it here on the show all the time, because we'll speak out against that. And, um, you know, the first thing that they do is, you know, call you an LGBTQ hater and, you know, all those sort of things, when the reality is, is we're talking about a great evil that they are doing to these kids by telling them that they're going to be happy if they are chemically castrated or surgically altered and uh, and it's evil but it you got to be willing to take the heat you got to be willing to stand up for that issue and face the nonsense that you're going to get from that uh, mob on the other side well and then there's a transgendered regret movement growing yeah kids that have had this happen yeah and they were promised that all their problems will be solved and they'll feel great about themselves and and they go through it they're out of school they're on their own they're like uh that didn't solve it uh yeah well not not only not only did it not solve it it caused a whole host of other problems including deep and um chronic physical problems and issues that they weren't 
told about adequately. And they were unprepared to make uh, those decisions because they were children and, you know, did not have the, the mental maturity or capacity to make those decisions. And I mean, it's a it's a wicked and evil movement right now. I read one article and, and the person said they didn't no, nobody told them that they would have to wear diapers after they had their operation. There's another video where there's a, a girl that's uh, in advanced stages of male pattern baldness. Yeah. And I know about yeah, that, 20, unfortunately. 22 years old. Yeah, and she's like, and she's not happy. And she's you can tell she's being real careful to say stuff that, you know, and then she just finally says, I, 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 I'm at a loss for words. This is what happens when a girl takes testosterone for five years. And, yeah. and she's permanently, she says, it's, it's irreversible. I'm, I'm losing my hair. I'm not going to get it back. And, and, and then she turns off the, the camera. Yeah. Um, and, and these kids aren't being told that. And where's no. the compassion? Where, where are the, where's the people that say, oh, you, you care about them? Well, we do care about them. Uh, if, if anything, let them go through puberty. Let them become adults. And then if they want to make decisions, fine. But don't uh, push them to have these life-altering decisions when they're a minor or when they're well, going through this adolescent puberty stage. Yeah, well, un- unfortunately, it's a massive industry, um, and there's real financial gain for the people that are manipulating these kids. And that that is um, uh, in- intentionally diminished, but all you got to do is investigate how many gender clinics have opened up across the country that did not exist only a few years ago. And if you just look at even their own investor decks where they talk about the industry being a billion dollar or three billion dollar um, uh, opportunity for uh, investment. That is where the real evil lies, is seeing that it's not about these kids, it's not compassion for them, it's not trying to solve these problems. They put that layer over it, but it's a money-making opportunity for a, a wicked class of, uh, of people within the medical industry and within the psychology business. Yeah, I have some friends, um, Alan and Leslie Unruh, and they're pro-life leaders in South Dakota. And they were talking about how there was a bill to stop um, surgeries on minors and went all the way to the governor's desk and it got vetoed. And then they said that they found out that it was the Chamber of Commerce and the hospitals that mm-hmm. pressured uh, the governor because it's a moneymaker. And, and yep. I mean, a, a lifetime of dependency on hormones and, and the pharmaceutical companies make these hormones. Um, that's a lot of money. And um, and a series so, of surgeries that are very expensive and, you know, um, repeat uh, surgeries and a whole process that they go through. I mean, it's yeah, it's a it, it's it's truly uh, wicked um, evil. And it's uh, it's hard to describe in any other way. But but getting back to the the uh, original topic of what I was talking about, the battle is for the mind. And yes. uh, they've been successful in in pushing their their rhetoric, their messaging through um, realizing the uh, influencers in, you know, the National Teachers Association and so forth. You know, I was reading about ancient Greece. Now, 
for most of world history, you have kings, Pharaoh, Caesars, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsars. And if you have an agenda, you got to get in to see the king. And so in China, you would have emperors and they would have uh, Mandarin eunuchs to keep their harem of their 2000 women. And, and if you wanted to see the Chinese emperor, you would bribe these Mandarins with money or favors to arrange for you to meet the emperor. And then you could push your agenda. Well, in Athens, they didn't have an emperor. They didn't have a king. It was a democracy with 6,000 citizens. And if you have an agenda, how do you push it in front of 6,000 people? I mean, it's a lot of busybody talking to go around. Well, they invented something called theater. And they would invite the whole city to this outdoor theater, all the acoustics. It was great. And they would put on plays, comedies, tragedies, satires. And they would ridicule and buffoon certain points of view and honor and extol other points of view. I mean, they would ridicule existing politicians by name, just like Saturday Night Live. And they would rib them and make fun of them. And you would leave the theater saying, man, I don't want to be like that poor guy. He was really, it was embarrassing how they treated him. And you would back away from him and everything he stood for. Yep. And then they would have the tragedies extolling the virtues of somebody that, you know, was gave their life. And you'd say, man, I want to be remembered like that guy, you know, and you would you would want to modify your behavior to fit in. And that's come down to us as media. And, and you think of your favorite sitcom and movie and show there's a character you identify with. They're cute. They're funny. They're the hero. And and as this series goes on, the character begins to make morally compromising decisions, a little lying here, a little cheat here, a little lust, a little revenge, a little, you know, giving tacit approval to an alternative lifestyle. And and, uh, and and you find yourself apologizing for him, saying, yeah, I know James Bond is with a woman he's not married to, but he's about to save the world and be the hero. So can we get on with the story? And it minimizes something that used to be important to you, marital fidelity. And now, well, it's not that important. Let's get on. And then the movie or the the sitcom will make fun of people that have old traditional values. They look like back, backwards and bumpkins and simple to the idiot, and even hateful. And you go, yeah, you know, that person, they were a little bit stodgy. And, you know, I don't want to be, you know, that person. And so you turn off the TV, you end up modifying your behavior to fit in with what you perceive to be the public norms of what's acceptable and what's not. And so they, you think of somebody's paying for everything you see on TV, right? Somebody, every single sitcom, every single show, somebody's writing the scripts, somebody's paying the script writers. They have an agenda. And so from Athens till now, theater, media is always political. Uh, they noticed it so much that if they're gonna sell a product and they have an actress, it's like, oh, they might buy it. But if it's a famous actress and you'll see the cologne, you'll want to buy the cologne because you like the actress. And Or if it's an athlete and he's wearing a certain kind of tennis shoes, you're like, oh, I like that athlete. And, and, and so you, you want to, it's a manipulating of this psyche of the public to buy a product. And it's just one step from taking it from Disney movies, selling you know, lunch boxes and pajamas to selling an ideology. And, uh, and so in, in talking about this, we can pull the curtain back from the Wizard of Oz. It takes away the power of it over you when you begin to see these things in the public and realize that you're not in the minority. Um, there was, a, I don't know how much time I have left, but there's we have, another. We have about two, two more minutes. 
Well, I'll say it real quick. So it's uh, called Spiral Asylum. Chuck Colson talked about this experiment they did with wine tasting. And everybody was in on it except one couple. And they poured vinegar in the wine. And this couple writes on their little card, this tastes terrible. But then they went around the room and the other couples would say this wine had character and it was delicious and it was robust. And by the time I got around to that naive couple, they scratched out what they wrote and they stood up and go, oh, yeah, it tasted really good. Uh, yeah. Because they, they wanted to fit in. Later, when somebody said all they did was pour in vinegar, the couple that had changed their views criticized the person for saying they poured in vinegar. And it's okay. something called false enforcement. Once people buy into the lie, they'll help enforce that other people buy into the lie. That oh, yeah. people want to fit in, and they um, and it's a manipulation of this human desire to want to fit in. The only way to break free from it is basically having a relationship with God. And, and the last story, I'll say it quick. Um, Peter was with Jesus three years, tells Jesus he'll never deny him. A couple of minutes later, he's with a group around a fire. And a girl gets in his face and says, you were with Jesus. And you can just picture Peter looking at everybody around the fire, and they're all eyeing him. And he's like, uh, I never met the guy. <laughs> it's like, that's it, Peter. You were just with him? You were with him for three years? And this group, it's being accepted or rejected by a group is very powerful. But then after the resurrection, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Sanhedrin says, we told you not to speak in his name. And Peter says, it's better to obey God rather than men. Suddenly, Peter doesn't care what the group says. He doesn't care what people, all he cares is what God says. And it's only when you have a relationship with God can you be free from caring about what the group says. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's a great uh, story to end on. And thank you for helping us to identify these things, because history is such a powerful tool to do that. And we are being manipulated and we need to be aware of it because that is how we take back the power. And so thanks for sharing all of these lessons. I always learn a lot whenever you're on. Um, remind everybody where they can follow you and read your books and uh, plug whatever you want to plug. Well, thank you. Uh, my website's AmericanMinute.com, and I have uh, a new book called Believe, and it sort of presents the gospel in a um, C.S. Lewis-type way that uh, young people really like, Believe. And then my wife and I compiled the book, and it's Miracles in American History, but it's a hardback. And it has 50 of these stories from our country's history, and every page is in color. Right of the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Civil War, the Barbary Pirate War, where it looks really, really hopeless, and God raises up people with faith and courage, and things turn around. And so just some encouragement for what we're facing today, but AmericanMinute.com. Amen. Well, thank you, Bill. I appreciate you so much, and thanks for um, coming on and enjoying this time. Uh, thank you, Bryce. Anytime. Blessings to all, all the right. viewers. Amen. All right. To God be the glory, and we're out. Thank you for joining us on Liberty Station. I hope you enjoy the show. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on Rumble, Liftable TV, or Spotify, or anywhere that you consume podcasts. Please text these episodes to your friends and support our advertisers.